All right, great to see everybody here, blessing to gather in this way. Hope you have your Bible with you. Hope you grabbed a bulletin on your way in. There are some notes there. Kids, if you want to be dismissed to Kids Connection, which is our pre-K kindergarten program uh, for, uh, just for children during the worship time, you can go out these back doors and find a place in room three. In our prison system, a prisoner on death row is usually allowed to request a last meal. Some of their choices are interesting, forgive my morbidity here, but Gary Gilmore, the first man executed after the death penalty was reinstated in 1977, he chose a hamburger, eggs, potatoes, and bourbon. Ted Bundy, infamous Ted Bundy, a serial killer executed in Florida in 1989, He requested a burrito and Mexican rice. Timothy McVeigh, executed in 2001 for his part in the 1995 bombing in Oklahoma City, he had two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream. Last meal. But then there's Walter Legrand. Walter Legrand was executed in Arizona in 1999. He asked for six fried eggs, 16 strips of bacon, one large serving of hash browns, a pint of pineapple sherbet, a breakfast steak, a cup of ice, a 7-Up, a Dr. Pepper, a Coke, hot sauce, coffee, two sugar packs, and four Rolades. Had to have the Rolades, you know, go to the chair, but needed to have a calm stomach in the process, I guess. In our text today, the Lord Jesus gathers with his disciples to consume what will be his last meal. He does not have the privilege of requesting what he'll eat for his last supper, but the meal in this passage in front of us may just be the most important meal ever eaten. The meal Jesus eats on the eve of his death is a meal that was designed by God the Father to exalt God the Son. It is a meal that preaches the gospel. It's a meal that displays the grace of God. It is a meal that signifies the creation of a new spiritual covenant between God and repentant sinners. It is a meal that believers will continue to eat for centuries and centuries and centuries. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we shared in it together. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. I'll be reading in verses 22 to 31 here in just a second. And what we're about to read is happening in the context of Jesus and his disciples celebrating the Passover feast in Jerusalem. The Passover necessitated you eating it in Jerusalem. So they're in Jerusalem. They're gathered in a borrowed room. It's typically called the upper room. Preparations have been made by Peter and John. Jesus has washed all the disciples' feet. They're reclining at the table. And at this point, even Jesus has called out Judas as his betrayer. They're about halfway into the Passover meal. And if you let me review just for a second, you remember the Passover meal was a commemoration of an event that had happened about 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. The Israelites had been enslaved to Pharaoh, trapped in bondage in Egypt. After sending many plagues to Egypt to weaken Pharaoh's grip on 
the Israelites, God sends a final plague. And in this final plague, God would unsheath his sword of divine justice. And this justice would not only be directed at Egypt, this justice would fall on everyone. In every home in Egypt, Jews and Egyptians alike, someone would die under the wrath of God's justice. And the only way for your family to escape was for you to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision, which meant you had to kill a lamb and put the shed blood on your door as a sign of your faith in God. So in every home that night in Egypt, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. When justice came down, either it fell on your family or you took shelter under the prescribed substitute, under the blood of the lamb. If you had faith and accepted this shelter, then death passed over you and you were saved. That's why they called it the Passover. Saving grace was only found in the lamb's substitutionary sacrifice. So for centuries, Jews had commemorated this event with a sacrifice and a meal. Jesus and his disciples are in the middle of that meal. So let's look at the text. Mark 14, beginning in verse 22. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all will fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. May God bless the reading of his word. There are four major themes I want to pull out of these ten verses. These are the four points in your notes. We'll start with salvation pictured, move to failure prophesied, then restoration promised, and then finish with denial protested. So salvation pictured. Jesus uses the Passover to give us a picture of salvation. There's already a picture in the Jewish Passover, but Jesus develops it further for his new covenant purposes. And what you need to know is Jesus is giving us a word picture here because the use of symbols and pictures was a very common prophetic practice. In the Old Testament, many of the prophets used dramatic pictures to illustrate what they were trying to preach to their audiences. I'll mention a few. The prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 4, he built a city of Jerusalem out of clay. And then he sort of played G.I. Joe by building a small enemy camp, and he used the figurines to carry out a siege on the city. 
the city that he had built. Obviously, he's trying to illustrate the truth that Jerusalem would be attacked. Ezekiel also shared, or excuse me, also shaved off his beard and the hair of his head, which in and of itself was a disgraceful act, but he took his shaved hair and he divided it into three piles. One pile he burned, another pile he struck with a sword, and the third pile he just scattered to the wind. Again, this was a picture of the judgment that was about to fall on Israel. They would be killed, the city would be destroyed, the people would be scattered. Jeremiah constructed a yoke, and he wore it around the city to illustrate the coming Babylonian captivity. You see this prophet just roaming the streets with a, an oxen yoke on his back. The prophet Abijah, in 1 Kings 11, tore his clothes into 12 pieces Gave ten to Jeroboam to illustrate the fact that God was about to take ten tribes from Israel and form the northern kingdom. So now here at the Passover feast, Jesus combines words and symbols to communicate to his disciples the truth about his death. So as the meal progressed, the head of the family, in this case Jesus, would explain what each portion of the Passover feast represented. The bitter herbs reminded them of their bondage as slaves in Egypt. The wine represented God's fellowship with the believer in the midst of the trial. The stewed fruit, which was the color and the consistency of clay, reminded them of the bricks that they had been forced to make as slaves. The unleavened bread represented separation from evil and the haste that they had to make to get out of the city. The roasted lamb represented redemption. And as I said, we're about halfway through the meal. Two of the four glasses of wine would have been consumed at this point. And these four cups of wine represented four promises made by God in Exodus chapter 6. The first cup was the promise of rescue from Egypt. The second cup was a promise for freedom from slavery. The third cup was a promise for redemption by God's divine power. And then the fourth cup, promised a renewed relationship with God. So at this point in the meal, we're at the third cup. The meal was almost completely eaten. And before taking the third cup, the one presiding over the meal would have taken another portion of bread and said, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. But that's not what Jesus said, is it? Jesus departs from the script He doesn't say this is the bread of our affliction. He shows them the bread and says, take, this is my body. What does that even mean? It means lots of things. We won't discuss all of them, but one of its meanings is this. Jesus is saying, just as the unleavened bread was the symbol of our affliction, my body, which is free from sin, free from leaven, my sinless body will receive your affliction. Jesus is saying, I'm going to lead the ultimate exodus and bring to you the ultimate deliverance from bondage, and it's going to require my suffering, my sacrifice. Affliction will be poured out upon me. He's holding up the unleavened bread as a picture of his human body. And this is a truth woven throughout his entire life. 33 years earlier in a town called the House of Bread, Bethlehem, The bread of life took on a human body. 
Everything Jesus did, he did in that body. He eventually would die in that body. He would be buried in that body. He would rise again in that body. He would ascend to heaven in that body. He will come again in that body. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we will spend eternity with him, him in that same body. Jesus used the bread as a connection to that body. He used the bread that night to teach his disciples what he was about to do. He was on his way to the cross to lay down his life for sin. And in doing that, he wants us to understand that the only way to have salvation was to become a part of him by receiving in faith what he would do on the cross. That's why he said, take, eat. We must receive what he did for us. We must ingest and internalize what he did for us on the cross. Those who believe in what Jesus accomplished on the cross can and will be saved. When they are saved, they become a part of his body. They are partakers of his life. This is the great truth that we commemorate every time we partake in the Lord's Supper. It's a truth worth remembering and remembering and remembering and remembering. That we, as the body of Christ, take part in his sacrifice. Now, when the time came to drink the third cup of wine, Jesus passed it around to his men at the table. They had a common cup, apparently. And as he did this, he did not use the customary Passover language here either. On that evening, Jesus added a new meaning to the drinking of the wine. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Jesus equated the wine and the cup to his own blood, his own blood which was to be shed on the cross just a few hours away. The wine and the cup was produced through the pressing and the crushing of grapes underfoot. That's how they would make the wine. Jesus was about to be crushed by the full weight of Israel and of Rome. They would combine forces to see him dead, but more importantly, in a realm much higher than a human court, Jesus was about to be crushed and pressed by the weight of his own father's wrath. And this is because when Jesus was on the cross, he literally became sin, your sin. As such, he was judged by God Almighty. The the full force of the awesome wrath of God was poured out onto the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing the picture then of the substitute sacrifice that I mentioned earlier, bringing that picture full circle. In Jesus, we have the final, we have the complete, we have the true and better substitute sacrifice, rendering the whole system that pointed ultimately to him, the whole feast realized in him, rendered it obsolete. So in this meal, the new covenant has been instituted. It's been inaugurated. I love what Tim Keller writes in his book, The King's Cross, about what Jesus has put in place through the Lord's Supper. He writes, Just as the Passover was observed the night before God redeemed the Israelites from slavery through the blood of the lambs, this Passover meal was eaten the night before God redeemed the world from sin and death through the blood of Jesus. That's what the third cup represented, a promise for redemption by God's divine power. It had always represented that. And as they shared in it at this meal, Jesus correlates it directly 
to what he's going to do on the cross. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus embeds an expectation in this meal. He says to them after drinking the third cup, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in the, new, in the kingdom of God, drink it new in the kingdom of God. And in that moment, Jesus is looking down the corridors of time to a day when he will return to this world, when he'll establish his kingdom. He's looking to a time when he will put down all his enemies, to a time when he will rule the world with his righteousness. He went to the cross with the expectation that he would rise again, that he would go back to heaven, return to earth in glory, and rule and reign. That's his expectation. That's why Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup. He's promising an unconditional commitment to his disciples and to all who would follow him. He's saying, I'm going to triumph. I'm going to bring you to the feast of the king. In Matthew 8, Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. That's when he'll drink the fourth cup. By abstaining from the fourth cup, he's solidifying that future promise which is exactly in line with the fourth cup's meaning. Remember the fourth cup's meaning. It was a promise of renewed relationship with God that would be fully realized in all his creation when Jesus would come and install his kingdom. And then the final aspect of this first point, there's also an escape. As you look there at verse 26, it says that they sung a hymn. Customarily, this was Psalm 118. And then they departed to the Mount of Olives. Remember, Judas had already left the supper. He's already made a deal with the Sanhedrin to bring them to Jesus. So they're likely en route to the upper room. Judas knows where they are in the city now. He can make all this happen. The opportune time has come. So Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples, they make their way out of the city. They go east down into the Kidron Valley and then back up the slope of the Mount of Olives. And in a fascinating parallel, 2 Samuel 15 tells us this would have been the same route King David took, barefoot and weeping when he fled from his son Absalom, who was also betraying him and trying to kill him. So let's get into verses 27 through 31. Let's look at this next session, section, Failure Prophesied. Verse 27 starts with a startling prophecy from Jesus to his disciples. And this comes probably as they're walking. They probably haven't gotten to the Mount of Olives yet. They're probably not hanging out there. They're probably in route. And he says, you will all fall away. Why does he say that? Well, he says it because the unfaithfulness of the disciples would be the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And I'm going to be saying that a lot as we kind of continue through the end of Mark's gospel the majority of the detailed prophecies from the Old Testament Jesus fulfilled in about the last 24 hours of his life. In this case, it's Zechariah 13.7. Zechariah 13.7. Jesus has utter confidence in God's word, and it was written in Zechariah 13 that God would strike the shepherd, the good shepherd, the Messiah of his people, and that his people would be scattered. Jesus is simply trying to show the disciples that they will all fall away. Why? Because Scripture says they will. His death would cause these disciples to disassociate with him. That's what fall away means, to disown or disassociate, which that's really the essence of sin, is it not? 
Is it not the primary act of rebellion against God to disassociate with your identity in Christ? To disassociate with him, to disown him, to push him away. Many of us do that every day when we fail to identify with Christ. When we fail to identify with Christ at work or at home or at school, when our testimony does does not or is not consistent with the gospel and the example of Jesus. But again, this disownment is not permanent. Notice again the promise of restoration and, and regathering there. Point three, verse 28. On the heels of his shocking prophecy, the Lord, he gives his men some precious promises. When Jesus told them that they would forsake him, they rattled to the core. They were upset. They needed something to bring peace to their hearts. Therefore, he spoke of his resurrection. Nothing brings peace like the resurrection. So he says, but after I'm raised up, repeatedly in Mark's gospel, Jesus promises this resurrection. And here he, he, he pairs it with a, a personal assurance, an assurance that should comfort the disciples greatly. He says, After I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Meaning, that same place that I called you to myself, there by the lake, when I said to you, follow me, and you did, and you left your nets, and Matthew, you left your tax booth, there in Galilee, where we all first met and got together, I'll see you back there. You may scatter and flee and deny me, but I'm going to be there waiting for you. So despite their great sin, despite our great sin, despite the fact that we disassociate with Christ regularly, he loves us. That's what we see here. And here's what I hope you understand there. Jesus didn't come for the people who had their acts together. Not even his closest followers had their acts together. So you can drop the front. You can drop the game. You can drop the perception management. It's okay. He loves you. He knows all about you. You don't need to be something you're not. You certainly don't need to be trying to impress me or anybody else in this room. We know you don't have your act together. I don't have my act together. But Jesus loves us. But that's not good enough for Peter. In verse 29, Peter speaks up. He protests. He protests his denial, and he, and he gives this declaration. He says, I will not fall away. All these other schmucks might, but not me. I'm made of a little better stock than these other guys. Remember, I walked on water. I was there at Caesarea Philippi when I said you were the Christ. I saw your glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. I will not deny you. But Christ refutes Peter. And he refutes him by giving him a detailed description as to as to how exactly his denial will go. That he won't just deny him once or twice, but three times Peter will deny even knowing Christ. Jesus even gives him some sounds to look out for. The rooster will crow twice. It'll clue you in. Mark is the only writer that even mentions the rooster crowing twice. Other writers mention the rooster, Mark says twice, pointing out, different watches of the night. But Peter comes back at him. I will not deny you. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And in his hasty answer, Peter serves as the first best example of unfaithfulness. 
When Jesus predicts his three times denial, that, that three times underscores the fact that it, that it was not accidental or incidental, but a willful, determined denial. One of the other gospel writers points out that when Jesus, or when Peter was in the courtyard denying Jesus, at the third denial, Jesus looked at him, meaning they were just across the courtyard from one another. They were, they were within sight of one another. But what does Peter's questioning of Christ's words here really illustrate? It illustrates that he's already in denial of Christ. He's already in denial of Christ. Is Christ a prophet? Yes. Are prophets wrong? No. Peter's saying Jesus is wrong, like my kids when they argue with me. What are you saying there? You're not honoring me because you think I'm wrong. You don't trust me. Peter's saying Jesus is wrong, therefore he can't be a prophet. He can't be Messiah. And when you think about it, it's events like these that richly display the reliability of the gospel accounts. Why? Because these accounts make all of Jesus' closest followers look so, so bad. They're dense, they're foolish, they're unfaithful, they're cowardly. You know, other religious books make their followers look like heroes, not the Bible. The Bible is a book with one hero. His name is not Noah or Moses or David or John the Baptist. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the hero. Every other person in the book is nagged by pride or unbelief or idolatry or some other gross sin. Only Jesus is exemplary. And remember, Mark, our writer of this gospel, he's writing Peter's story. He had traveled with Peter and heard Peter share the story of Jesus hundreds and hundreds of times. And in the telling of of the story of Jesus, Peter refused to leave out this story. The story of his failure. The story of his protest. Only a man beautifully humbled by the Lord Jesus would tell this story. That's exactly who Peter was. All of us would like to think that we would have succeeded where Peter and the other disciples failed, that, that we would like to think that we would have stayed with Jesus, that, that we would have been arrested too. But I think if we're honest, we probably would have said the same things and be- behaved the same way that Peter behaved. But we would also be the recipients of our Savior's grace and his forgiveness and restoration. And sometimes, sometimes it's by way of our failure that we grow in great appreciation of the immensity of that grace and of that forgiveness. But here's something to keep in mind. Jesus accepted that he would be abandoned and left alone so that you would never be abandoned or left alone. Let me say that again. Jesus accepted that he would be abandoned and left alone so that you would never be abandoned or left alone. Think about that. Think about that. Hebrews 13.5 rings more precious than ever. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He was left alone so that you never would be. And so this Markan sandwich, this inclusio closes. Not sure if you noticed that we're in the middle of another of Mark's sandwich passages, but we are. Mark started the sandwich in verse 21. This is from my sermon last week, explaining how Jesus had identified Judas as his betrayer. That's the bottom bread of the sandwich. 
The middle of the sandwich, the meat of it, was the Lord's Supper, Jesus painting a picture of his work on the cross. The top bread is declaring that the disciples will all fall away. So in the middle, we have the faithfulness of Jesus in carrying out God's plan of redemption. And bracketing that awesome work of Jesus are two examples of unfaithfulness and betrayal. This sandwich highlights that the sin that necessitates the sending of God's Son is not someone else's sin. It's not sin out there. It's not the sin of tyrants like Caligula or Nero, but it's the sin of Jesus' own disciples, of Peter and James and John, of you and of me. We need restoring grace and forgiveness because we betray and we deny God's Son, which isn't really new. In our gospel thus far, Jesus was rejected by his family, by the religious leaders, by the Gentiles at the Decapolis. Remember back in chapter 5 or 6, he would be rejected by Peter, as we just said. The other disciples, Judas specifically, the whole nation of Israel would reject him. Ultimately, he'd be rejected by God the Father as he took our sin upon him. So as we work through the final hours of Jesus' life, the words of Isaiah 53 ring true. He was despised and he was rejected. Ours is a betrayed and rejected Messiah. But because of his rejection, we are thoroughly accepted. Some of you need to hear that today. Because of his rejection, you are thoroughly accepted. We spend so much time running from or avoiding rejection, licking our wounds from rejection, fearing rejection. Because he was thoroughly rejected, I'm thoroughly accepted. Ponder that word thoroughly, thoroughly accepted. He was completely betrayed, yet he is eternally loyal. That's why he gave us the supper. To remind that even though we lack faithfulness to him, he has been faithful to us, and he is continually, progressively faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. He is our substitute sacrifice. God's wrath fell on him so it doesn't have to fall on us. That's the essence of the gospel. If you've never, if you've never gotten under that sacrificial payment, if you've never trusted in Christ as your true Passover lamb, so that you don't have to endure the wrath of God that is due your sin. You can do that, not by performing some feast or some other sort of religious rite. You can do that by simply trusting in the sacrifice provided, putting your faith in Jesus, throwing your whole life down and saying, you're the one, you're the only one that can save me from sin and death. And you can take from the bread when it's offered, and you can take from the cup when it's offered, and you can look at the way that proclaims the death of the Lord Jesus for you until he comes and we drink that fourth cup together. Let's pray. Father, there there is a fountain filled with blood. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus, and it it cleanses all of our guilty stains. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the scene that's on display here, Jesus eating the most important meal ever eaten. 
a meal that the church would celebrate and commemorate for centuries and centuries and centuries and will celebrate until he comes in glory. God, we, we confess that we anticipate greatly his coming. We, we want him to come. Even this hour, we want him to come. But Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know him, that has not trusted in him and pleaded for his mercy, Lord, I pray that they would do that, that they would be saved for that hour of his coming. Lord, thank you for this time together as your people. Thank you that we get to celebrate your faithfulness, not our faithfulness. We don't come here celebrating anything in us. We know that we are betrayers and deniers and wanderers. But Lord, you call us back, you gather us back, you constantly bring us together so that you can show us your grace and your mercy. We thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.